Well, good morning, everyone. We are continuing in our series today called Active Discipleship as we talk through the things that we believe that God has for us as a community here at the Edge Church. Now, it's one thing to uh, want to do something. It's another thing to lay it out, talk about it, pray about it, and really invite God to um, get us all on the same page so that we might actually be about it. Now, I know uh, so many of us were excited that last week we gathered as a large group at our new location, which was awesome. It was so good to see so many of you that that I haven't gotten to see for a while. And and we're going to meet there at our new location, One Way Ministries, at a minimum of the first Sunday of every month. And the rest of the weeks, we're going to meet in our house churches um, throughout the Fox Valley area. So make sure to reach out. If you're not yet connected to a house church, I am just telling you that you are missing out on some, some things that God is going to do in your life and through your life. We have found house churches to be a great way uh, to be more involved in conversations around the sermons and, and, and good prayer and ministry time as we seek to follow Jesus together. Um, Last week, as we gathered in our large group, Pastor Steve kicked off the second part of the series as he talked about the importance of identity, specifically the identity of Christians as children of God. My name is Neil, and I am one of the pastors here at The Edge. Today, we're going to talk about another aspect of identity. But before we get to that, I want to speak to the importance of identity. We humans um, just always have this tendency to define ourselves by what we do, who we're with, a particular skill set or job, a family name, or by wealth. We define ourselves by sexual orientation or gender identity or with particular pronouns or maybe causes or by online outrage. Now, I don't say any of those things to to shame you, not at all. I don't shame you if you start doing some of those things. That's not my heart, and I know that's not the Lord's heart. But it is a bit of a calibration check um, on all that's good for us. Because when any of the ways that we identify becomes more significant to us than the ways that God wants to give our lives meaning and value and significance, there will inevitably be chaos and disorder that surrounds us and the people in our lives. And the significance that we are seeking will ultimately slip through our hands as if we were attempting to grasp water. Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29 speaks powerfully to this. The Apostle Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I I want you to step back just for a second. Can we just acknowledge that Paul was not at all suggesting that there are no actual differences between people. He was showing just how great it is for us in the realm of the sense of our identity to cross from death to life when we, we, when we receive Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And in light of that great reality, there is no more significant way for us to be identified. We simply belong to the family 
of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. It doesn't matter what your religious background used to be. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or if you're male or female. If you are in Christ, that now is your primary identity. And today, we're going to talk about what it means in light of that identity, of, of what it looks like for us to be servants as we continue to explore our identities found in Jesus. Now, I, I want you to think back to childhood. I would guess that there are very few of you um, who, when you were little kids and your parents said, well, what do you want to do, Jimmy? What do you want to do, Janie, when you grow up? I'm sure that there are very few of you who said, I really want to grow up to be a servant. More likely, if you're like me or the people that I used to hang out with, you'd probably say that you'd like to be an astronaut or, or a famous singer or maybe an architect. Or, or maybe you just said, I want to be a rich trust fund kid. But I doubt that many of you put servant very high on your list. I think part of the reason for that is that the word servant has a bad connotation. We associate it often with slavery, and slavery, uh, it was and continues to be an evil institution. It denigrates people, it's controlling, it's abusive. There's nothing good about slavery. And it's also because from time to time, from, from the very moment that we have any sense of our surroundings, as soon as we're cognizant humans, we're told to strive to be the best. Get great grades so that you can have the best job, so that you can go on the greatest vacations and have the biggest house and the best car and the nicest clothes for you and your kids. And, and ultimately, you can have the, the best social media presence so that everyone thinks you're really a whole lot better than you are, even in your church community. At the core of who we are, we want to be significant. We want to have purpose, to feel like we're important in the world. Or at the very least, we want to feel like we played important roles in our time here on earth. So the question I want to ask you is, is it intrinsically wrong for us to strive for greatness? Not exactly. Just as the desires we have inside us are not um, always wrong, it's often how we choose to satisfy them. That is, that's not always um, worked out within us properly. As one of my first pastors said, the devil has a perfect counterfeit for every good thing that God has created for you, for your pleasure and for your good. And sin is the result of us allowing our pleasures and our desires to lead us rather than allow God to define our identities and to give shape to our desires and the satisfaction from what we accomplish through them. Let's take a minute and look to the Bible to see what we can learn and apply to our lives about what it looks like to be servants. And we're going to start with Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink this cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, so, so two came and the other ten were on the side. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and he said, You know that rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Being a servant One who practices acts of biblical service can be a little bit confusing, though, because service isn't really service when it's done with the wrong motives, is it? If you go out of your way to be noticed for what you've given to someone, are you actually serving? If you give money to the church, but your motive is to be recognized or to gain influence or to impress your friends in the church, it's not actually service towards the church. It's really just service towards yourself. Motives matter a lot. And any time we do get the opportunity to serve, our hearts are likely to surface. I've had this happen so many times. Many of the teams that I've led in Haiti know this very well. We start out so strong and we have this great desire to serve. And it gets hotter and hotter and we're more tired and we have less energy as the days go by. I remember one of the final days of one of our medical missions. We all gathered to have breakfast, and we had a devotional that was led by one of our team members. And the subject was on endurance. And here's the thing. We needed to hear about this because we were so exhausted. We were totally ready to come home to our families. We kind of wish we could skip that last day. We didn't feel like serving anyone. We felt like taking a hot shower and eating some stuffed pizza. That's literally all we wanted to do. But we made the decision to pray for God's strength to help us betray our feelings and to help us finish our mission well. And God gave us that grace. Ultimately, as a people with a desire to serve the Lord with all that we have and all that we are, we can look at Jesus's whole life and death as the ultimate example of service. And we can also look at how he taught his followers to serve. Learning to serve was a tough lesson for the original disciples of Jesus, just like it is for us today. Now think about this. They followed Jesus for three years. They knew over and over and over again that there was something extremely different about Jesus, and they were drawn to him because of it. But they had a difficult time seeing how his way of living was really supposed to fully change their lives. Honestly, just like we do, we read the Bible, and sometimes it's like, God, I don't know what you want me to do with this. I see what you did, but how does that apply to my life? And just just like we do, um, the disciples frequently demonstrated to God, to Jesus, as they walked with him, how much they didn't understand his way of life and what he was calling them to do and be. In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, we're told that an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Hey, that's kind of embarrassing, hanging out with Jesus, the one who came to die for their sins and our sins and everyone's sins. He was literally, he was coming here to die, and they were having a talk about who's the most important, who's the greatest. And and this wasn't an isolated event for them. There were at least three moments in the gospel accounts. So the first one is the one of the first scriptures I read, Matthew 20, 20 through 28. And then there's Luke 9, 46, and there's Luke 22, 24. So at least three moments where these disciples started arguing about who was the most important and who would be the most important in the kingdom of heaven. So in eternal life, they were still trying to jockey for position. Let's make it a little bit worse because it actually was. They didn't just do that. They did it at the worst possible moments because Jesus was talking about his 
his um, his impending death the entire time in each of these three accounts, he was basically saying, my life's about to end. And they're like, hey, that's really sad, Jesus. But can we talk about where we're going to sit in the kingdom? I mean, what a horrible, horrible time for them to bring up themselves. But that's what we do. That's a human tendency. I want to picture, I want you to picture that for a second. The disciples were learning and they were experiencing miracles of the greatest servant who's ever lived. And they're trying to act like they're gonna, they're, they need to be the most important and they're the best. It makes me think about what would happen if we put Conor McGregor, Jake Paul, and Floyd Mayweather together in the same room. Now, if you're an MMA fan or a boxing fan, you know how this would turn out. It wouldn't be pretty. So this leads us to the final night of Jesus's life on earth. And he was gonna have his last meal with his disciples. But there was a problem. There was no servant to wash everyone's feet. And in that culture, only servants would do a job that was so lowly. And these weren't just any feet. This wasn't like a casual foot washing um, before Easter where everyone walks up and and somebody bows down and, and washes feet. It wasn't like symbolic. No, this was really, really a gross job. These weren't just any feet. These were calloused, sandy, smelly feet. You know, like middle school boy feet. You've all smelled that before, right? Like the no sock and gym class every day kind of fungusy feet. Yeah, they were probably that and worse. So the disciples probably thought that Jesus was going to deal harshly with this servant who, who didn't show up for, for whatever reason. But that isn't what happened at all. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 2 through 17. It says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So what does all of this mean for us? Very simply, as Richard Foster writes, Jesus redefined greatness. Greatness exists. It does. It exists on earth and in the future kingdom, but it's not found on the rungs of the corporate ladder. 
Greatness is, isn't found in power or in prestige or in money or in positions of authority. It isn't found in the White House or in the halls of Congress. It isn't even found in your seat at any proverbial table. Greatness exists in people who are willing to act in small ways and do the things that no one else wants to do, empowered by the heart and the spirit of Jesus himself. Here are three things that this act of service can help us understand and implement in 21st century Chicagoland, right here in the Edge Church. Here's the first. Being a servant looks like the CEO talking to every person in the company. Being a servant looks like the CEO talking to every person in the company. I want you to think about this. Jesus, the, the creator of the earth and the stars by his very breath, according to Psalm 33, 6. He breathed the stars into existence. He looked at the need to wash feet before he was arrested, wrongly accused, stripped, beaten, and executed. And he didn't delegate the task to any of his disciples or to a servant because he was demonstrating to them what greatness looked like. And it was about not feeling like you're too important to do the mundane and lowly things in life. So he stooped down and he washed all their feet. And that's what good leaders do. They serve. They aren't removed and insulated in ivory towers or in green rooms backstage where they never have to interact with regular people or experience the realities of normal life. Good leaders are good servants, and no task is too menial for them. The Apostle Paul said this about the attitude of Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is important. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When I was a little kid, I, I often went with my dad uh, to work. My dad always had a job as a corporate executive, and I remember loving, absolutely loving, have the, having the privilege of hanging out in my dad's gigantic corner office. And I loved his huge office, and I loved eating snacks from the vending machines when he'd give me a dollar, and I just felt it made me feel special. But what really stood out to me, and it's something that stands out to me even all these years later, is that I, I watched always how my dad interacted with people. And whether it was his boss who was the actual CEO of the company, or if it was the security team or the janitor, my dad gave each person the exact same attention and he knew them by name. And he seemed different than a lot of the other executives. A lot of the other executives never came out. And if they did, they sort of looked ahead or ignored people as they walked past him. And my dad said that important people will always take time to spend with anyone who needs their attention. He said, no one is too important to not take time and care. Greatness is caring for the least, not focusing on how to be first. Here's the second takeaway for us today. Servants stand out. Servants stand out. As Jesus went from disciple to disciple washing feet, the room had to have been stunningly silent. They couldn't believe what Jesus was doing. The king of all kings was stooping down and handling gross feet. That makes no earthly sense to us. And then Peter, the impetuous disciple, I feel like I can often relate to, to his attitude. He says, uh, Jesus, uh, are you planning on washing my feet too? What Peter said was really less about Jesus and more about himself. Because what Peter was saying is, Jesus, I wouldn't be doing 
what you're doing. So let's just call it a day. If you, if you haven't noticed, there aren't too many um, continuing ed or church conferences on how pastors can be better servants. There, it's always about leadership. It's heavy in leadership. It's light on service. Why? Because it doesn't compute with the world. I don't think uh, conferences based on uh, learning how to be better servants would be very well attended because it's just not really what, what we want to do in the world, in the corporate world, and oftentimes in the church world. We want our churches to be like Fortune 500 companies. That's not what God wants for us, though. Imagine, fast forward to the cross. Imagine the surprise of the men who nailed Jesus to the cross when he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness, not vengeance, is what Jesus offered. That's the surprising love of God. Real service surprises everyone in the room because it goes completely against the flow of the culture that surrounds us. We are forced to take note when we witness service. One of the values that we hold near and dear to our hearts here at the edge is the church at large. And, and, and you might have heard us say this before, but what that really means is that we are not worried as much about building a little edge kingdom as we are about connecting with other churches and serving together to show the world and our community what God's kingdom looks like. It looks a whole lot more like washing feet than chasing after a name for ourselves. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it warns the church about modeling itself after the patterns of culture. James writes, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without cause that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God's desire is for us to embrace our identity as servants of his and of the world around us. And that is what greatness looks like. And that leads us to our final point today. Servanthood should define our lives. Servanthood should define our lives. Here's what that means. Service is not a single moment, but a lifetime of decisions. When Jesus was preparing to die on the cross, I want you to think about this. Think about a prisoner spending his last moments alive. He was preparing to die on the cross. His focus was still to lead his followers well to the very end. And instead of asking for a gluttonous meal, kind of a, a, a last meal before, he, before he's executed, um, he ate his last meal after kneeling down and washing each foot in the room. Imagine how much that impacted each person's life there and how it can transform ours. And then Jesus said, now I've shown you. Now go and do that. In other words, no more arguing about greatness because that's what the world does. You're thinking way too much like the indoctrination that you've experienced by media and, and corporations. No, if you serve, you will be great in the eyes of God. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And Jesus did just that redefining greatness. Many, many years ago now, we were at a birthday party, and after we cut the cake, all three of our girls surrounded us, and they yelled, I want the first piece. We all know this because we all, anybody who's had kids knows kids always want the first piece. 
it's not the first thing for them to think about other kids. They, they want the first piece and they want the biggest piece. And we decided that day that if anyone asked for the first piece, then they would always get the last piece. It wasn't to be mean to our kids. We just wanted to show them what it looks like to put others before themselves. We've taught them that ever since. And, and, and they know, and we know, because they'll remind us, anytime they insist on being first, or if they catch us insisting on being first, we're reminded that that is not the way God wants us to be. They still know that and they live that way today. And we should too. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to earth to save us from our sins and to pay the price for them so that we don't have to. He modeled uh, what ultimate servanthood looks like for us. And if you have not received the peace of God and a restored relationship with Jesus, then you're leaving the best gift that you'll ever receive unopened. If you want to say yes to Jesus, you can do that right now, right where you are. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What would keep you from doing that right now in your own way? You can say something like this in your own words. It, you don't have to sound super religious. All you have to do is be honest. Reach out to the Lord. You can just say something like, Jesus, I call on you. I call on you just like the Bible says. I have tried to find my own way in life and I just keep messing up. I turn to you and I turn from my sin. Thank you for making a way for me to return to God. Thank you for showing me how to be a servant of all. Help me to honor you and the people that you've blessed me to know all of the days of the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, please let me know. You can email me, neil at edgeaurora.com. I want to celebrate with you. I'll be back with you in just a few minutes.